Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, in person, we are on uh, at our building on Hill Road uh, in the Oak Grove, Milwaukee, and Gladstone area outside of Portland. We gather together for kids' church, worship through song, prayer, connection and community, and studying God's Word together. Then throughout the week, we meet in small groups. That's the in-person. Online, you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill Church, or you could uh, follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. I want to talk about connection, though. That's the thing I want to talk about this morning before we start. The reason that we do online anything is about connection. Like any church, we have people in our church who from time to time have health issues. You're sick, uh, you had a surgery, something, something goes on, you can't be around for a few weeks or a week or, or a month, whatever. These allow people to stay connected. They don't lose connection with what's going on at church. And we are happy and grateful that we have the technology that allows that to be the case. The, the idea of being a shut-in is, is so diminished by technology, and I'm so thankful for that. So we stay connected with each other even when there is health issues. That's why we have an online small group. There are people who have health issues that connect to the online small group, and they don't lose that relational connection. The other way uh, that we can help people is there are people who just never can show up to any church service, and we're glad to provide this service for them. And if that's you, uh, and you consider Faith on Hill your home church, but uh, you know what, you just can't ever make it to anything in person, then the invitation is just be connected. Comment, say hi, send an email, uh, check out the online small group on Wednesday nights. You can email uh, smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. And then there's the type of person that's just checking things out. Maybe you just did a YouTube search for uh, Philippians chapter 4, and you're like, hey, I just, I just want to hear somebody talk about this part of the Bible. Totally cool. You're welcome. Uh, we know that most people who start coming in person on a Sunday morning were watching online for a while before, and so we want to say hello and be welcomed. But if Faith on Hill is your church, if you consider us your church and you want to be connected, we say you can be connected online. We have a small group that meets online. We have our online content. Um, we have online giving. And you might say, oh, you're just talking about money. But no, it's, it's just about if you're connected. If you're not connected to our church, we're not looking for you to give. There are churches that do that, by the way. Their whole apparatus is structured around that. We're just saying, hey, if we're your church family, you can be connected with us through our online content. You could be connected with us through our small groups, both online and in person. And there are multiple times throughout the week because everybody has different schedules. And you can be connected and supporting what God is doing. And you can just go to faithonhill.com and there's a giving tab. That's it. And there's no pressure. Just an invitation if you say, hey, this is the church family I feel comfortable in, to be connected. Now, we're going to continue, actually, we're going to finish the book of Philippians today. So if you have a Bible, or you can go on your Bible app, or you can just do a quick Google search, Philippians chapter 4, and that's what we are going to finish today as we close up the study of the book. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. 
in this way, dear friends. So he's saying everything we've talked about in the previous parts of this letter and everything that as a church we have looked at the last several weeks or couple months, he's saying stand firm in this stuff. And then he says in verse 2, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sintechi. I think I'm saying that right. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So in this first part of this closing chapter, this chapter four is just Paul sort of closing out the letter. There is an appeal for unity in the church. These two ladies, Yodia and Sintechi, are disagreeing. They're fighting. They're maybe not talking to each other. Um, and think about this. In the modern church, especially in the American church, if two people get in a fight in church, what happens? One or both of them leave. Rarely do you have a situation where for months or even years, two people just sit on different sides of the church and don't speak to each other. That rarely happens. Usually one or both people will leave. And I've been around the church most of my life. And I've been in some sort of leadership or ministry position in a, in a church most of my adult life. I have seen this sort of thing happen. Somebody gets into an argument with someone else and there is a break in relationship. Anytime there is an opportunity for sides to be drawn. It doesn't even have to be something between you and another person. For example, I remember one of the first things where I was aware of this uh, was my senior year of high school. And a, a girl in the youth group had stolen a fairly significant amount of money um, from a family in the church that she had gone over to their house for some kind of youth event. And while everybody was there, she had gone upstairs and stolen some, some stuff from the family. And they, they could prove it was her. It was, she had, including stolen a credit card. And they had, they had found it in her, her bag. Um, you know, she had, this, they could look at balances and see that she had gone to some stores at the mall. And, and you know, there were, there were think, ways to prove it. Well, the church decided to not shame her. You know, you hear about these horrible stories of churches that shame people uh, for their sins. The church made a decision to not shame her. The leadership of the church appealed to her and to her parents. All you have to do is give back the money that you haven't spent. Uh, we have the credit card back because uh, one of the other kids in the youth group had found it and taken it back from her. We said, we have the credit card back. It's canceled anyway. But just give back whatever money you haven't spent. Apologize. Repent. Do what you can. Maybe start paying 50 bucks a month. But just do what you can to make this right. There's no criminal charges. The family in the church is being gracious to you. They're not pressing charges. They're not calling the police. They're just asking you to admit that you had done this and ask forgiveness. But the church didn't shame anybody, and they told every kid in the youth group who was involved, do not talk about this because we don't want to shame her. We want to encourage her and her family to repent because, you know, sometimes parents are like, my baby wouldn't have done this ever. And so the parents decided that despite all the proof, uh, they decided to uh, go with that their daughter hadn't done anything. Well, what happened was there were other people in the church, in the youth group, who 
didn't know what had happened. And then they were like, well, I think this happened. And, you know, the church kicked that family out and rumors start going around. And so finally people in leadership had to like kind of publicly say what had happened. They had tried, tried to not shame this family, to not shame this, this high school girl. But the family started spreading that they were being falsely accused. They started, you know, telling people that the church's leadership was being unfair and was being abusive. And so finally people had to, they had to say, hey, this is what happened. And what I'm getting at is this. People picked sides. People made choices. I think that this girl must be innocent. She's so sweet and loving. She must be innocent, so I'm going to take a side. And there was disagreement among families in the church, specifically around the youth group. But what happens in those situations usually is people just leave and go to a different church. I was, uh, I was asked recently by, by somebody I really respect, but, but somebody asked me recently, what about Bible verses that talk about lawsuits among Christians? What about Bible verses that talk about church discipline? And there are Bible verses that essentially talks about disputes, legal disputes even, that should be dealt with in the church. First Corinthians talks heavily about this. And I thought about it for a minute and I said, my response is this, you can't do it. It's not possible. That's the biblical norm but we live so far out of the biblical norm that it's not possible. And what I mean by that is this. There was one church in the city of Philippi. In some bigger areas, Jerusalem, uh, Ephesia, uh, the city of Ephesus, places like that, there were multiple house churches, but they were all connected to each other. That the, the multiple house churches were like almost like a multi-site church or a denomination. They were all connected one to another. You couldn't just leave the church on 1st Street and go to the church on 10th Street because the two churches said, we are the same church. We just meet in different locations because there's no building big enough uh, to house us. And so they would have said, hey, you need to go back and repent. You need to go back and work this out. You need to go back and seek peace and, and forgiveness. We can't do that now. If somebody leaves, let's say this. Let's say we found out somebody was in significant, like, life-dominating sin, and we encouraged them, we implored with them, we, we pleaded with them for repentance, they'll just leave, and they'll go to a church. If they want to still go to church, they'll just go to a different church, and they'll either go to a church that's so big that they can just hide, or they'll go to a church down the road, and we might, you know, contact that church and say, hey, just so you know, this happened. And, and I've had this happen, not here, fortunately, but I've had this happen in other places where somebody has gone, left for another church, and that church has said, no big deal. We don't care. Are they coming? Are they putting a, a butt in the seat? Then we don't care. Um, I know of a, a, a church where a youth leader had done some really shady things, left they contacted the church. He had skipped to a different town, and, and they contacted the church he was going to. Hey, just so you know, don't, you can't put him around anyone. He's just not to be trusted right now. And they just hung up the phone on him. True story. So what I'm saying is this. Imagine a situation where you can't leave, and here are these two ladies who are fighting with each other, and either they would show up to the church meeting and just sit on opposite sides, or maybe just one of them isn't coming, and then they hear that the other one's sick, so then they'll show up, or they just, whatever it is, it's getting uncomfortable, and Paul's just pleading with them. It's an appeal for personal responsibility, that you and I, 
you and I have a responsibility wherever possible to live at peace with all people and specifically with our sisters and our brothers in the faith. We have a responsibility whenever possible to choose the way of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? While we were still his enemies, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And if Jesus died to save me when I was his enemy, if at all possible, I and you and us, we should seek peace and reconciliation. If at all possible, we should seek peace and reconciliation. That's our responsibility. Maybe Yodi and Sinchiki are not going to be friends anymore. Maybe they were once like the best of friends and now it's just going to be tough for a while. But he's saying, whatever you can do, do it because you are family. Because Jesus has forgiven you your sins, how can you not forgive someone else? I'm not speaking here of an abusive situation. I'm not speaking here of an unsafe situation. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But barring those extraordinary circumstances of abuse or unsafety, Wherever possible, even if, you know what, we're never going to agree. There's people with whom we will never fully get on the same page with. But can we get on the same chapter? Because we're part of the same book, the book of life, the names of those who have been saved and washed and redeemed in the blood of Jesus. Then in verse 3, he appeals for collective responsibility. He says to the rest of the church, the rest of you, please help these women. Do what you can. I think sometimes with our American individualism, we say, well, that's not my responsibility. I'm going to stay out of it. But the church should do all that it can, and churches should do all that they can to seek reconciliation. Can I be honest with you and say that that has not always been the case? And it's hard sometimes. There are churches locally that have not been willing as we have sought, hey, can we find a way? It's cool that they're going to your church now. But is there a way that we can have some kind of reconciliation? And they've just said, no, let's just let it be. And I, I grieve over that. And I will be the first to acknowledge that it's hard. I have um, lived this at times. Uh, I've talked about this before. My previous church, um, I, was I officially resigned, but I was forced to. And uh, it wasn't scandalous or anything like that. It was just a situation where the senior pastor didn't like me <laughs> and uh, hired me and then didn't like me anymore. And so he wanted me gone. That was a really painful year for my family, um, really painful. And so what do you do? And I've chosen, not easily, but I've chosen to have a, a cordial relationship every so often, every couple years since then, I've had to have a conversation with him. Um, every so often, um, I've, had to, I've had to talk with him. And I don't hate him. I, I'm not sitting there fuming in bitterness. But we still don't see it eye, eye to eye. Uh, we still don't agree on a lot of things. And I'm, you can make the choice. And I'm not saying it's all me. He's made the choice. He's never badmouthed me publicly. He's never belittled me publicly. He, he's never, he's never, after I left, he never said a bad word about me, as far as I know, publicly. And as far as I know, I think I'm honest in saying this, you know what, other than like some vague assertions here or there, and I'm, I guess, telling this story, you know what, I've, I've never really talked about it. And I think 
I think that's a choice you can make. You can make the choice, how do I find a way to live in peace? Um, this last couple weeks, I've had to interact with somebody who left Faith on Hill in my very first days, and they were mad about a lot of things. They didn't like, you know, change, and, you know, you had the same pastor for over 30 years, and then you have this new young guy with a beard come in. I get that. But I've had to interact with this person a lot in the last couple weeks. And you know what? It's been okay. We're never going to be best friends. Um, you know, they think I did a bunch of things. I think they did a bunch of things. But we have peace, and I don't think that's bad. And I think we have a personal responsibility to seek peace with one another. And I think as a church family, we have a collective responsibility to encourage peace and unity wherever possible. Peace and unity are biblical values. And wherever possible, we should seek to live in them. Then Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. That is a direct slap in the face to large parts of American Christianity. And I mean all all sides, old, young, left, right, doesn't matter. American Christianity and gentleness are not always synonymous, much to our shame. He says, the Lord is near. Some translations, uh, including uh, the one that I read from personally, the New Living Translation, I'm teaching out of the New International Version, but the New Living Translation and others say the Lord is coming. And there's disagreement does the word mean that God is near, as in like in the first part of the book of the Revelation, we studied that Jesus walks among his churches, that the spirit of God is present among the churches? Or does it mean let your gentleness be evident to all because Jesus is coming soon? And so different translations have chosen to take different, there's two ways you could translate it and they've kind of split the difference. I would say this, both are true, both are applicable. We should have Gentleness as evidence, because gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Go back to the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. These are all the fruits of the Spirit. And the Lord is near. His Spirit is among us. Jesus is walking among the church. And as Jesus is working in our lives, as we are living holy lives, gentleness should be evident. And wherever gentleness is not evident, it shows that holiness is lacking. Righteousness is lacking. The love of God is lacking. And it could also mean that the Lord is near. He is coming soon. And so our mission to tell anyone and everyone about Jesus that we can is hindered where gentleness is lacking. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember that this is a man who is in literal chains in prison writing this. He's exhorting us to joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And then he's exhorting us to gentleness. And then he's exhorting us to pray over every situation. Something happens and instead of reacting or posting or typing, he's saying, pray. Pray and let the peace of God wash over you. And then he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from, or see, from me or see in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. The peace of God 
which transcends all understandings, verse 7, will guard your hearts and your minds. And then here in verse 9, the peace of God will be with you. I've said this before, I'll say it again. A lot of what we've talked about the last several weeks as we've studied the book of Philippians is righteous living, holy living. And yet what I have noted over and over again is how joy and peace are like central ideas to this book. And if we don't see joy, peace, and gentleness in a church or in a person's life, then there is a serious lack of righteousness and holiness being lived out. That needs to be emphasized. But this word exhortation, exhortation means a vigorous urging for action. It's like pleading with you, please live in this way. And he exhorts us towards joy. He exhorts us towards prayer over worry. He exhorts us towards purity for the purpose of peace. He's summing up the things he's been talking about. Find a way to live in the joy of God. Find a way to live in the peace of God. Find a way to see the gentleness of God spread out in your life. Worry, rage, anger, or prayer. Seeking God. God, don't you know what that person has done to me? That's a valid prayer. It's equally valid to say, Lord, help me to forgive them as you have forgiven me. Don't you know what's going on in this world? Yes, he does. But Lord, help me to see your true purpose in what's going on in this world. Now, this verse here about not being anxious, I want to be careful here. Verse 6 talks about not being anxious. There are people who have clinical anxiety. And I think I have been very, very clear, and I will say it again. You can love Jesus, believe the whole Bible, and go see a counselor or a therapist or psychologist. You can love Jesus and need to take care of your mental health too. There are people who have actual clinical anxiety, and there is nothing sinful about that. What is being described here? is something happens, a situation happens, a crisis happens, a need arises, and people just lose their minds. Panic sets in. Can you believe it? Can you, there's no hope. All is lost. Or crisis comes, the storm arises, panic sets in, and we turn to God in prayer, trusting that Jesus is at work. This is not a condemnation of those who have anxiety. This is not a condemnation of those who struggle with fear and doubt. This is an encouragement to turn to prayer. And anyone who teaches otherwise, I think, is allowing a personal opinion or philosophy to override what the scripture is talking about in the big picture of this chapter. Then when it's talking about whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, think on these things. I have found that there are Christians and churches who want to play referee. They want to be the gatekeepers, the arbiters, the enforcers of what those things are. I can't tell you what those things are, 100%. Look, I, I can tell you this. If I hear in my daily life, you may surprise you because I'm a pastor and I'm teaching the Bible right now, but in my day-to-day -day interactions with people, I hear a shocking amount of profanity, and I hear it from children largely. That has an effect. I'll tell you, there are days where I just come home and I just need, it's like, Lord, wash me clean. You know, you can be out in this world and just be 
inundated with the filth of the world around us. Lord, wash me clean. That being said, I don't feel like it's my job nor the church's job to be the referees of what is good and pure and holy. Now, we can definitely see some very clear things, right? Heroin is terrible. Fentanyl is deadly. Life-dominating sins, addiction to substances is just no good. It, 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 there is no positive outcome from these things, from having your mind destroyed by addiction to drugs and alcohol. There are things that are filthy and vile, celebrated in our media. And yet, if somebody likes to watch a good true crime show or watches a show that somebody else finds offensive, I don't feel like it's my job to arbitrate. I simply say this. My question is, how much Jesus is in your life? And I have found that the more Jesus I put in my life, there are areas where it just is no longer enjoyable or fun or comfortable for me to continue consuming or viewing or whatever, how I live, how I speak, what I watch, what I listen to. There are times where I just have a, a awareness that this is not healthy or good for me. And I return to the gospel. And I stay away from certain things because I want more Jesus in my life because I've found that to be the better way. But I'm not interested, and I've heard too many sermons where somebody preaches these verses and then starts listing all the things that they find unchristian. There are things that are obvious. There are no redemptive value. There is no excusing away anything. You can't excuse away fentanyl or heroin. You can have an open and honest conversation and debate about alcohol or medical marijuana or whatever. Uh, you cannot excuse away pornography, but you can have an open and honest conversation about whether this show or that show is acceptable. I'm just saying I have found that if you want the peace of God, if you want the joy of God, if you want the gentleness of God, then we in general need to turn away from this world. And I will say this, I know some people that would be horrified at some movie that maybe you've watched, but for them, it's the news media that they consume that fuels their rage, their anger, their vitriol, and takes away the joy and the gentleness of God. Every person has a different situation and what's going on, and we all need to just say, Lord, show me your ways, lead me in your path. Verse 10, Paul says that he rejoices greatly in the Lord, that at last you are rewarded for your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it, meaning I was over here, you were over there. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, living in plenty or living in want. All I can do is this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For, every, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, but what I desire is that more 
to be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied, and now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to his, uh, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and the sisters who are with me send greetings, especially all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So the Philippian church in verses 10 through 19, we're told that the Philippian church multiple times supported Paul's ministry in prayer, in money, and in people. They had sent um, a gift more than once financially so that Paul was free to do his ministry And they hadn't just done that, but they'd been praying for him, which we tend to minimize. We tend to think, oh, what really mattered was the the money. But the prayer, that's like, okay, sure, but the money. No, he's saying, you were praying with me. You were concerned for me. That was huge. And then he said, hey, I received the gift that you sent with Epaphroditus that we talked about him a few weeks ago. And he had not just brought money and then left, but he had stayed and helped Paul and served alongside him. So he had sent, they had sent prayer and they had sent finances and they had sent people. And Paul's saying, hey, you supported me. And he's making it clear that they are, get a full share in the reward for his ministry. Like he's saying, anything God blesses me with because I've served him, you have an equal share in that blessing. You were a part of this. You are an equal co-laborer, even though you aren't here with me physically. And collectively, that happens to us as a church. I really believe that. When right now we've started taking donations uh, Sunday mornings for the Toy and Joy program. And if you want to drop toys off uh, for kids in our, in our community who are underserved and underprivileged, uh, then reach out, adam at faithonhill.com. Even if you can't make it on a Sunday morning, we can schedule a time uh, so that you can bring some stuff by for those kids. And then people in our church go and serve there. And not everybody can make it out. Not everybody can be there. But I believe that as a church, as we support them, we share in that work and that ministry that they have. And I get texts during the the Christmas season all the time from those folks saying, hey, I got to pray with this person today. I got to share with this person today. I got to encourage somebody today. And, And we share in that work. You know, sometimes there's stuff happening at the church uh, and ministry things, and you go, well, you know, Adam or somebody else, that's me, you know, but some me or somebody else did it and you didn't, but you're praying for us, you're supporting in other ways, you give, those things are all collected together, and I believe that as a church, we collectively share in each other's ministry. And then he has a final greeting. He's grateful for their collective support. And then he has this final greeting. He greets all the Christians. He doesn't just greet the important people or the big givers or the pastors or whoever. He greets everybody because everybody matters. And then in verse 22, he makes, hey, everybody who's here knows I'm writing this letter and they greet you too. All of us are connected to one another. And then finally, he talks about those who belong to Caesar's household, meaning he's, he's probably in Rome. That's been my uh, guess the whole time. But even if he's not, even if he is just, you know, he's, he's basically people who are part of the most elite family or household in the world at that time. And Jesus is getting a hold of them. The, the, the center of like debauchery and immorality in the world was the household of the Roman emperor. And people are getting saved. And I want you to think about this as a closing thought. 
What he's saying to the Philippians is maybe right now you're experiencing a hard time. He's indicated this in previous parts of the letter, that they were experiencing some persecution, some rejection, some suffering. It felt like things weren't going right. And he's encouraging them, God is moving and you're connected to it. And you know what? Maybe right now in your world, it feels like God's not moving. But know that God is moving in other places, seen, and we are connected to it. And God is moving in your world, unseen, yet. But I believe there will come a moment where collectively we see what God is doing in the unseen. And we can rejoice in the meantime as we look around and see what God is doing in the seen realm as well. God bless you. We'll continue studying the Bible next week. We will be back together at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. We'll meet throughout the week in small groups, and we'll see you again next time. If you need prayer, if you need somebody to listen to you, if you need encouragement, if you have a question about the Bible, email us, office or adam at faithonhill.com. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more small groups information, and we'll see you next time as we gather together as a church family. Yeah.